0: Which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth, and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes, and join me as we begin our Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 62 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. For those of you looking at me, I'm wearing my Van Gogh Apple Blossoms shirt. It's not a shirt I could wear easily a couple of years ago, but I'm getting into the looking at the sad parts of my life as places that I can find joy. So Van Gogh and his paintings in the Van Gogh Museum and my beautiful six days in Amsterdam need to be happy, need to be a good part of my life, even though they're attached to pretty negative things. I left the house this morning with 50 things to do. So it reminds me of when I first moved back to New Hampshire and I lived in Webster and I didn't live right in Concord. And I would pack every morning everything I needed and not come home until nighttime. And so next to me on the floor is like the workout bag and then the lunch and then the snacks and then just everything and then my computer and all that. So huh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, which is such a huge theme of this podcast and how life can be sometimes. How it's good for me. So picking up from where I left off last episode, I'm talking about those years post-collegiate running and getting into running for Nike Boston and then finally realizing what I need to do is start my career and look at running as something I do along with being an educator. And so the winter of, and spring of 1988, I'm completing my first year teaching. And as I might have mentioned before, I taught with a woman named Linda. Her classroom was next to mine, and she was the resource room teacher. And I had taken over her classroom. And halfway through the year, when it became evident that I wasn't really doing what I needed to do with some of these students, we split the jobs. So I spent two periods a day as the resource room teacher, and she went in, and spent two periods a day doing some actual academic teaching. And it was a good move. I have said before, she didn't care for me. I think it had nothing to do with me. I don't think it mattered who that person was. She felt very much taken out of her job. And I think it bruised her ego a bit. Again, there was no mentoring for me. It was, well, let's see what you can do. Better do it, better do it. And it was really difficult. I had a very hard time coping with that kind of pressure and criticism. And so I did what I always do. I just, I spent my efforts really making sure the students were happy and okay. And I had wonderful relationships with my families and the students. I remember more than one mother of those middle school kids I taught reaching out and saying, thank you so much. My son hasn't wanted to go to school in years. and He loves school now. Whether or not I was helping them memorize their multiplication facts or state capitals, they enjoyed being in the building. And that's a huge piece of what makes any child able to learn anything is that they're comfortable and happy. And that was something I was pretty proud of. So the school year sort of went along without incident, but it became clear as the months went on that. Then I needed to be teaching somewhere else. And when spring came, and there was all that ability to move around and take different teaching jobs in your district, I was offered the chance or actually suggested by my supervisor, Mr. McArdle, to teach at an elementary school that was nearby. And so I did. I changed from a middle school teacher to an elementary school special ed teacher. Special ed in Massachusetts is organized much better than it is in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, everything is a label. You have to fit a label to receive services. Massachusetts, it's how much time you need help fitting in and doing what you needed to do. As you were tested and identified with different types of learning issues, maybe your issues were emotional, maybe they were learning disabilities, maybe they were speech. You didn't have an identification. That, that isn't what got you services. What got you services was how much, how much time you needed to succeed. So it was much better and built into every special education teacher schedule. It was an afternoon, a week off. So I taught four and a half days. And that, that afternoon was when I could schedule meetings, when I could do testing, when I could catch up on my paperwork. It really took care of special ed teachers in a way that New Hampshire just doesn't. And I apologize, New Hampshire, but you don't. Maybe it's different now. But in, in the mid 80s, when I was first teaching and special ed, was really just coming into its own as a new thing. Kids aren't just stupid or all these horrible names we used to identify children who are different there were really things going on and support necessary and everyone could improve. This was prior to inclusion as well. So if you did have an issue, like I know at this time, Concord had a school called the Moral School and it was where a lot of special ed students went and a lot of special classes were held. That faded away and phased out as I was getting into teaching and students with disabilities and neurological issues and IQ differences and all of that were kept in their neighborhood schools, which is where they should be. That's where their friends are and that's where they should learn and all of that. So as I... March through the spring, it was relatively uneventful. I don't have a lot of strong memories anywhere. I don't have a lot of strong running memories. I know that I was healthy. Nothing was injured on me as of yet in 1988. I was doing my best to balance the life of who am I involved with? Am I dating Sev? Do I still love David? Do I date nobody for a while? And I had some pretty serious and some pretty scary experiences in that spring on relationship wise. It was very, it was a difficult tightrope to walk. And I know it put a lot of pressure on Seth because there he was trying really hard to do good things and I was a hot mess. And, and then I would be trying really hard and he would be a hot mess. And we really, really pretty equally sabotaged each other sometimes just with our inability to put certain things aside. You know, that was an interesting relationship and an interesting scenario. At the same time, I talked a lot about how connected to David's family I was and I had a really hard time living without that support. Is that fair to David? Oh heck, no! That man really was a saint. He really did try hard to understand what I was and who I was. I loved his family and I loved my time with them, and so I couldn't commit or uncommit either way. I functioned in a state of fear, and it's such it's such a mirror for all those years with Roy, and I'll get into that in I don't know what season that will be, but I look at how much I was struggling, how much I functioned in fear, and children that come out of trauma do because there's no safety and no surety that the trauma won't happen again. When I was doing my student teaching years prior, I was at an elementary school and I had a little boy who had been in Turkey in the the whole Turkish genocide in this horrifying time in his life. We got up to share. I, I was doing a little sort of social group and we were sharing things that scared us. And he shared being woken up in the night by the sirens and getting under the dining room table and having to stay there. And he goes, and you go back to bed. And then the siren comes, you get back under the dining room table, and then you go back to bed, and then you get back under the dining room table. And, and I remember thinking, you know, this little boy is seven. How is he ever going to sleep? I have no idea what his life is like now. I couldn't imagine at the time what that was like, not being able to draw the parallel that I was no different. Mine wasn't an air raid siren and potentially being bombed. Mine was, oh, somebody's bad is in the house now, and it's not safe for me to sleep. And Never knowing, sometimes if I went to sleep too early, I might not know who showed up or left after I was asleep. So there really was no safe way for me to fall asleep my entire life. In those basic needs and basic patterns, your brain gets wired a certain way. Neurologically speaking, we are mysteries. And I look forward to the day that mental illness, all the mental illnesses and all the things that we describe and identify as a disorder or a problem will be connected to actual physical scientific activity in our brain. We can stop judging people so much over what they do and how they behave based on what's going on in their heads. So the spring of 1988, I completed teaching at the Joyce Middle School and was given a job at an elementary school, as I said. So the summer of 88, again, I don't have super strong memories of it. I worked at a running camp at Brandeis, went to Switzerland again with Martha and Sev again to get another running camp at Switzerland. This time we traveled to Liechtenstein. I didn't run the race this year. The year prior, I had run it. It's 18-mile race called the Long Vosser Louth. That means land, water, run. I had another amazing time there. Job-wise, I think I was filling in a bit for a USA Track and Field. Martha still worked there full-time, working at the magazine a little bit. Martha and I did a series in that magazine where we went around and we had like a like a column on the back. We would write about different things. I remember we did a, an article on diners, places to eat, the Pig & Whistle Diner. I love diners, you know, train car diners of old. Those are amazing restaurants that I really, really miss in our modern technology. There are still some out there and they're wonderful. There was one in Concord called Louis Diner that's gone and it makes me sad. It was just sort of more of the same. I had the stability of a full-time job and I had financial stability. I was able to pay my bills. I'm not good with money. To this day, I'm not good with money. I spent like an hour yesterday with a friend of mine helping me organize my finances because I just, you know, if I have $50, I can live on $50. If I have $500, I live on $500. It needs to be analyzed and taken care of. (laughs) The summer of 88 was, you know, pretty much like any other summer and I also know that it was a summer of pretty intensive partying and pretty intensive unsurety around SEV and what worked for us and what didn't work for us and what might be happening in the future. So the fall of 1988, I start teaching at the Clark Elementary School, the LAPP. So in Wolverine, they put the word the in front of schools. And, and it's a habit that I got into. You know, in Concord, we don't say the Kristen McAuliffe School. We just say Kristen McAuliffe School or CMS. But they put "thus." So it was the Joyce was the middle school I worked at, now, you know, the CLAP. In the 1970s, the clap was a slang term for an STD. And so all of us older teachers got a kick out of that because not even the older ones, just because it was funny. And, you know, the clap, yeah, I go to the clap, the clap elementary school. It was across from Horn Pond, which was a beautiful little area in in Woburn with trails and such. It was nice. So looking out the front windows of that school, you had a nice view. You looked out the back and you had the playground, which was also a good view. But playgrounds were concrete back then, just asphalt. You know, with painted lines for kickball and four square and such like that. I began that job. I remember the t shirts that the mascot was an eagle. So, eagle soar. And so, a little kid had drawn this beautiful picture and it would soar with the clap. S O A R, soar. Of course, that's a double meaning. <laughs> I think you had an STD, it might be sore. So, we had a lot of joking around about that school. And I share it just because I just remember thinking how funny it was. And this was also a time in my life that I straddled feeling like I was still the student or the child. I would sit in the teacher's room and sort of feel like I was with my parents, or my bosses. You know, granted, the principal is the boss, but she didn't come in and eat in the teachers her much. When she did, nobody talked about anything. She was tough. Her name was Alice Hinchy. The kids call her the Hinchpole. <laughs> it comes from the Trunchpole, which is a book Matilda by Roald Dahl. The principal in that book was terrifying. So anyway, I had a rough start. So in my job at the middle school, my issue had been Linda, the woman that just didn't like me. And we had very different personality styles. She was very rigid and black and white. And so was Alice Hitchie, and she did not like my la la la, how nice it was to the students and, and my very, very, very artistically based, emotionally based style of teaching. She wanted rigid, structured plans. And I could write out lesson plans, but if I wrote a plan and it didn't work, I wouldn't stick to the plan because it wasn't working. I would realize the plan isn't effective for what I have in front of me. I'm gonna switch and I would switch up. So when she would come to watch me, she didn't like it because well, you said you were gonna teach this and you didn't. And I said, well, writing the lesson. I didn't know that this little student had just gotten yelled at and this little student doesn't feel good. It doesn't make sense to do that. So I took an activity that would be more fun that would teach the same thing. She just didn't appreciate that fluid nature of teaching. And then my room was right next to the main office at that time. She could just listen in to everything I did. She didn't like any of it. So partway through the year, I got moved to a different classroom. They were sort of consolidating all the special services into one room instead of all these little rooms, which was wonderful. So now I was in a classroom sized room. So I had a corner of it. And then the speech and language pathologist was there and the, the title one person was there and the occupational, all the specialists were in one room, which was great for us. But I think sometimes we're easily identified as kids that needed extra help. And in the mid eighties, special ed wasn't significant enough to make those kids feel better. And so I spent a lot of time being the cool teacher so that these kids could go, yeah, I get to do against. So I had to do a lot of duties, recess duty and things like this. And so I was always, when I went out, always very active with the kids playing. I would pitch kickball. I would. Fourth Square, and always be the one that and they would set over who got to serve, so I would serve, and then we'd rotate through that way. And it was a lot of fun. I had a really good time at recess, and what that did was it solidified my position in the school as a teacher that all the kids wish they could have. Did it feed my ego? Absolutely. So, one of the things I did there was a fourth grade teacher named Judy Giomino, and she was a hot ticket, She's Italian as the day is long. Well. And she put on this Christmas show, she would do this Christmas show, and so she said, Do you want to do you want to choreograph an app? I had done the kick line at the middle school. My spring semester at Joyce Middle School, there was a talent show, like a variety show at the end of the year. I did the seventh grade dance line and we danced to the song We Go Together from Greece. And so I did poodle, half the girls in poodle skirts looking like the good Sandy and then half the girls in like black spandex and faux leather looking like the new Sandy that falls in love with John Travolta when he's in his little leather sweater. So the song was the Greece song, Go Together. I did a really good job. I'm, I'm a good choreographer. And so Judy had seen that show and she goes, oh, would you help me? I always do a song with fourth graders. And so I got a bunch of fourth graders together and there's a song by the waitresses called Christmas Wrapping," And it's a whole song about, you know what? Forget it. I'm not doing Christmas this year. And the singer tells a story about meeting a guy and running into him several times throughout the course of the year and never quite getting together. And Christmas comes and forget it. I'm just going to do it myself. And she forgets something and goes to a store and runs into the guy. and Maybe Christmas together. And it's a really, really fun song with a really catchy beat. It's by the waitresses, Christmas rapping. And so I had the kids with sunglasses and Santa hats and the horn music came on. They came out and danced with the horns. It was, it was amazing and wonderful, but it wasn't traditional. It wasn't for a traditional Christmas carol. And I remember the audience loved it. They were clapping and cheering. then we were looking over at, at the hunchbowl and she was just angry, livid. She hated it. She just had no room in her heart for that show. She couldn't stand it. And I remember afterwards, she scolded me. That was completely inappropriate. And I just looked at her like, the kids loved it. It's a Christmas song. And, and they danced and sang and the audience loved it. How is that wrong? But it didn't fit what she wanted. And you know, oftentimes people like me that come from troubling, conflicting role models in their lives, adults that say one thing and do another, authority can be an issue. And it was for me. I think it still is sometimes. I just have a hard time being told what to do if I don't really understand why. And if it goes against what I believe, I need to know that it makes sense that I'm doing something I don't really want to do. That was a, a lot of fun. And that year too was the year of Feed the World. There was a horrible, horrible famine in Africa. And all these rock and roll stars got together and created an album, Songs for Africa, I think it was called. And it was Feed the World. And that was the lead song on this album. And all these all these artists donated songs and the album made, you know, it was worldwide and there was a music video. MTV was relatively new at this time. MTV came around in 1982. So now it's, you know, 1988. Those six years. And that was when they really did music videos. That's all it was. There weren't all these sort of ridiculous TV shows on there now. All of those songs were a huge piece of reality of these elementary school students. And so that was my my idea, because I also did an Aliens Feed the World, and the school sent a donation to the fundraiser. You know, I liked it. And I just remember that I had such a good band of teachers there who really, really stood up for me and worked hard for me around this principal who really, truly did. Like the other thing that happened was I applied for the assistant outdoor track job at Newborn High School. The distance coach had been there for a long time and came right back after this one year, but he had something going on. I think it was a health issue or something and he needed to take the spring off. And so I went in and coached and had they just said to me, just give him his workouts, I would have been fine. But again, it was one of these things where I'm the coach, they need to develop trust in you, but this other coach came and watched everything we did. He was there all the time. It was intimidating because I always felt like I was doing it wrong or what should I do different? And of course they all went to him because they trusted him. He was their coach and they had done really well. So I had these three, four really, really elite distance runners. And so I did well, but they all ran personal best that year. We had a good year. One of them had been fighting injury and I, I was able to just kind of work with her and get a little bit of last year. You have, this is a new year. It was difficult, but it was so much fun. And by Coaching and being with these high school students, some of my eighth graders from the middle school were ninth graders now. I reintroduced myself to so many of these runners. It was so much fun. I knew, though, as the spring went along, and it was now into 1989, I was truly having a hard time with this position. I was still living with Brenda in Somerville, and that was wonderful. I, had, I loved my living arrangement, but she wasn't sure that she was going to stay there. Both of us were in flux. She had a boyfriend, the boyfriend was getting serious. Maybe they were going to move in together, maybe not. I, had this overriding feeling that that I needed to move back home or that that I needed to get on my feet somehow. So a number of things happened in the spring of 1989. So I was coaching. Again, I had a schedule now, like I did in the fall of 87, where I was up at six in the morning and working all day and then coaching and then doing my own training and then going late. I will say during this spring period, my drinking was a bit more under control. I wasn't outrageously getting drunk all the time. In my prior year at the middle school, there was a group of teachers there that partied pretty, pretty heavily. And actually were into pretty heavy drug use, which speaks volumes to the fact that it isn't just teenagers and college students and drug addicts that use Coke. Coke was a rich person's drug in the eighties, and I believe it remains that way. And so my access to that through my new group of friends teaching in Woburn was was alarmingly easy. Again, I never had to buy it. I was never meeting drug dealers and all of this. I was I was separate from the world of drugs. But I was pulled into using them. I walked in. It made me feel better. I now realize I have a relatively high diagnosis of ADHD, which a lot of traumatized children do. That whole jittery, always moving, can't pay attention, need to be doing two things at once way of forgetting life. And so cocaine is very, very soothing to people like me because it reacts in the brain in a way that is different than people that don't have this type of neurological response. So I knew that I had all these things going on. Things with Seb were becoming alarmingly not okay. And he had a a life change. He was in Nike Boston, and I believe he was offered the chance to return to Oregon. I know that he left New England, but I know that those things, there was upheaval and change coming in the reality of Nike Boston. He was going to move on to other things. And all of these things were just in the undercurrents at this time. I remember in the spring of 89, my feet started to hurt and I started to have a lot of pain in one foot. They didn't have MRIs back then. If you, you had a stress fracture, you had to have a bone scan. And those were very difficult to get. It took a long time. And my biggest memory here, which is when I really knew that I couldn't stay teaching with this particular principal in this particular reality, is I had an appointment for my foot and it was teacher conference day. And I had met with all of my parents. I either called on the phone. I had checked with all the other teachers to see when they were meeting their students. But she was rigid. It's on your contract that you're in your classroom until four o'clock. And I had seen all my students. I was sitting in an empty classroom. So what I should have done is gone to her and said, I have seen all of my students. I have an injured foot and I was really limping, noticeably limping. I hadn't been able to run, which of course gets the monsters in my head filling. Really. But I didn't. I just packed up my classroom and I came out the door hoping that I could just leave, sort of surreptitiously leave. And there was the principal standing right there. She looked at me like we well, are leaving an hour early. And I said to her, I have seen all of my students. I have to drive to Wellesley Hospital for a medical procedure. And she was livid, just livid. So she pushed for me not to be rehired. And I remember meeting with my supervisor, Mr. McCArnell, and him saying, there's a job for you here. You're a good teacher. We understand. You're worth the effort on our part. But I was just starting to feel like, I don't know. I don't know. And so I applied for a bunch of jobs again over the summer. I did say, I'm done here. I've had a wonderful two years. If you would like to give me a letter of recommendation. I'm resigning my position. And that's what I did. And so summer started and I didn't know at the time the nature of my injury. And so I continued to train on it. They gave us these really strong pain medicines back then that we can't get now. And so I could take one of those pills and not hurt and then go run. They gave me the horse. It's called butazole on it. I've mentioned them before. And I had a prescription of it. There was this stuff called DMSO, dimethyl sulfoxide. You can still get it. It's unbelievably helpful for pain relief. It was like a liquid and you would you'd rub it on your legs or wherever you hurt, your foot, your leg, wherever your issue was, and it went immediately into your system. An unbelievable anti-inflammatory. I have to do research on it now to see if it's even still legal or used, but I remember it was hard to get. I was putting DMSO on my foot all the time and taking this strong anti-inflammatory. We went to the nationals. Nike boss and I qualified for the 3000. It was in this race that I injured my foot in a way that would render me not unable to run for months. So I'm running the 3000 and suddenly cannot push off on it at all. And it reminded me of the time that I ruptured my plantar fascia. So I'm thinking, oh no, it's a plantar fascia injury. with the other foot. And I was just beside myself. I can't believe I've done this again. And I was just devastated and I could hardly walk. I took crutches for the rest of the trip. Seb was angry at me and I don't blame him. I, I don't know. It was just a disaster. And so after that, I got a bone scan and you have to drink this stuff. It's like stuff that makes you glow behind screen. And sure enough, I had a stress fracture in my foot. Now, had it been like a metatarsal stress fracture, those are relatively easy to heal from. Mine was a navicular stress fracture. So the big bone on the top of your foot that all your metatarsals sort of attach into is your navicular bone. This is a really difficult bone to heal because blood flow to this area, blood flow to your feet is minimal at best. And the navicular gets hardly any at all. In this day and age, if I had a navicular stress fracture, I would go have a plasma injected into my foot. I would fill my foot with plasma you know, there could be more healing for that boom. So I was in a boot and on crutches for six weeks and then in a boot walking around for 12 weeks. That summer, I was completely separated from anyone I knew in the running world. I still lived with Brenda. I had resigned my job in Woburn, but I did not yet have a job in New Hampshire, but I had made the decision to move home. So I worked for Boston Bike Courier and I had a car. I was a car delivery courier. So again, this is pre internet. So there was no way to, You know, fax machines existed, but they were expensive and not common. And the paper that came out of a fax machine was like mimeograph paper. So you couldn't fax an official document and have it be legitimate unless it was just a copy of the document. If you needed a signature, you had to bring the actual document to the person that would sign it. Most of my deliveries were big envelopes full of contracts and legal documents that I would drive to one big company. I spent a lot of time in the financial district in downtown Boston, going up to the 15th, 30th floor to get documents. So I made a big sign for my car, Boston Bike Courier, you know, so I could just sort of pull up to a building. I got a lot of parking tickets that year. I probably, owe, probably still owe those parking tickets, although I think somewhere along the way I paid them. But I developed some really aggressive driving habits that summer. I made great money. And here's why. I knew my way around so many suburbs of Boston for two reasons. One, it had David who grew up in the Boston suburbs. And so he knew his way around. So anywhere we went, whole measure of towns we would drive through and I knew how they connected. I was also a runner. And when you run, you learn your way around communities in a really, really, I knew shortcuts. I, I just knew so, so much of that area. Plus, I had lived in Needham. I had lived in Somerville. I was living in Somerville then. I taught in Woburn. I had unbelievable knowledge of suburban Boston. I could get done quickly. My boss would call me on the phone. And again, it was pay phones. There was no cell phones. I would do a delivery. I'd go to a pay phone. I'd call. So you always had a big pile of change with you. And my boss was like, where don't you know? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll get lost one day. It was also no GPS. You had a map and you got an address and you found your way on a map. (laughs) Seriously, it was so much so different than it is now. So I had a blast and I made great money. I probably made $500 a week, which back then was like $1,500 a week would be now. Now A lot of it went into my gas tank. A lot of it went into my savings account, my bank account. And I built up quite quite a good cushion. I also spent the summer applying for jobs. So I applied for a teaching position at a couple of hospitals in New Hampshire for rehab and you know, young people that were having mental issues, mental health issues. By the time I was applying for jobs, most of the public school jobs were gone and I had a special ed degree and I wanted to be close to Concord. And so I applied for a job at Second Start and I've talked about this in a prior episode, but in, in a bit of a different vein. And so I went up and had an interview and I took the job and I took the job because they really liked me. And I knew, part of me knew that it, wasn't going to be something that I would like. It was a very small alternative high school. You had a small classroom. You and I had a teacher all day together doing everything. And it was one type of student. And what always made me survive my first two years teaching in Woburn is that not only did I have my special ed students, I had my regular ed students. I had my track athletes. I had a balance. And I didn't end up having it in this particular position. So while I didn't lose my job in Woburn, I often say I've been fired for every job i would had. I was asked to come back, but it was after really sitting down and putting together a plan of an action that I would take. I stayed in Woburn and taught another year. I'm not sure what would have happened, but I do know that the summer of 1988, I was injured and couldn't run. which put me in a bad place. I spent no time with my running friends, and they were the ones that sort of kept me on the straight and narrow. I spent a lot of time with my partying friends. I had partying friends I had met in Woburn. I had partying friends that were loosely related to my running community. I had partying friends that were connected to David and his family. I also spent more time that summer with David. Seven and I had, had really had a, had a pretty significant falling out. He was furious. He just didn't like how I was behaving. It really, it really hurt him. In his mind, I had all of this potential and I just threw it away with my lifestyle. And he's right. Much of my behavior did, but it was, my behavior was so driven. You know, my critics will say, well, you're using that as, as an excuse. Well, a cat is an excuse for hives. If you're near a cat and you're allergic, you have hives. Should you avoid the cat? Of course but sometimes you can't avoid the cat. So you do everything you can, stay away from the cat, take medicine, all of those things. And and that's how I look at my behaviors. I was behaving absolutely as a traumatized child, now an adult, (laughs) would behave. But that was the summer where everything sort of escalated out of control. I moved a bunch of stuff home. And my last sort of event in Boston was Karen's wedding. Karen, you had the best wedding ever. So fun. Karen's wedding isn't my story to tell, but what I remember the most is that it just exemplified family. You know, she married Richard, one of the kids, The family with 12 kids, right? One of them. So they grew up together. They were neighbors together. They were friends. They were each other's siblings' friends. And then they fell in love and they got married and they're still married and they have two amazing sons. And I just look at, to this day, I'm envious in a good way of people that had that upbringing, that grew up in that nurturing environment where a family really was first. Your family was okay. It wasn't a family you needed to get away from. And I loved everything about her wedding, everything about the reception. It was just a blast. I remember I French braided her hair, put a white bow in it. She had this beautiful wedding dress that a few years later, Diane altered up and wore. And it was just a part of my life that I was so not ready for. I wasn't ready. I knew, and I also knew at that time that I was far too broken to ever marry somebody as good as David. Not that the people I married weren't good, but I was years later by the time I had the guts to get married. And I just... I remember looking at him, all the pictures, all the cellar dwellers pictures and everyone with a cigar in their mouth and all these traditions that they have and, you know, and just, and just feeling this horrifying pit in my stomach and I could never measure up and that and I didn't have it and that I needed more help than I was getting. The other thing was I was still really spending a lot of time with my therapist and my psychiatrist and he was the first one. I really started to talk about the sexual abuse and how my family should have noticed it. The change in me physically was profound enough that my mother should have noticed. And I had always been angry at my abuser, not so much at my mom or my parents that way. I always thought of my mother as my savior. And whether or not this was healthy, one of the things he had me do, and this was just before I moved home as well, bring a picture of you every year of your life. So I went home and I went through and he didn't tell me why. And I laid them out on the floor and he looked at the pictures and he goes right here. He pointed to a picture of me Playing piano, and my face was just gaunt, and I had dark circles under my eyes, and I just didn't look right. And I wasn't sick in the picture. It wasn't a time of year that I would be unhealthy. It was between third and fourth grade, and you looked at the third grade picture, and you looked at the fourth grade picture, and it was sort of the end of fourth grade, actually, maybe even the beginning of fifth, right around there. And he goes, Here, this is when things got really bad for you. And he was right. You know, you look at my third grade school picture, you look at my fourth grade pictures, and the change. It's more than just a year's worth of growth. It's a haunted expression that, that defies logic, like what's going on here. Now, in defense of my mother, you know, she came from a, probably a more abusive household than mine or abusive in a different way. Also received no support. Married right out of high school. You know, she came into motherhood with no training at all. Her mother was quite absent from her life. She was raised by a great grandmother, a grandmother, my great grandmother. And that whole environment was not a safe environment for her. So she came into marriage, really no training on how to to be a mom. And she was an amazing mom. Did she love us? Oh, very much so. And she still does. She was unprepared for the environment that she created, not on purpose, of course, coming into life, you know, not healed herself. You know, a really new area of study now is generational trauma and how not only do we pass it on with our behaviors, but DNA wise, genetically, it's intrinsic in us. And when you're born to a traumatized mother, you, you inherit the trauma and you're born traumatized, even though nothing has happened to you. It's interesting and something that resonates with me and I want to look into it more. I suddenly had a very, very unhealthy relationship with my mother. It was around this time as well that I had grown quite sick of bearing the burden of my paternity. So as I said, my biological father is Tom Ritzman and not Mr. Higgin. And you know, my parents had been divorced and then they had been remarried and that all happened when I was in high school. And they had worked very hard to provide a stable home for Jonathan and Johanna. While it was a disaster in many ways, my mother worked nights and my dad was just absent. He was downstairs working on his Baha'i stuff a lot of the time. Jonathan and Johanna raised themselves and, and they both struggled greatly in their early adult years with that reality and having to really figure out who they were all by themselves. In this news of biology, it was difficult. It was the actual biological father. and he was, But I got tired of the secret. Mother and Tom had told me when I was 13, thinking it would make me feel better about certain things and all. And, and it didn't make me feel better at all. It was, it was a burden I had to carry. My brother, Jonathan, shared my biology. And now suddenly that was my secret to keep from him. And so I told him, I remember telling him he was out of high school. It was when he was in, sort of in that in-between time of life, out of high school, not sure what he's going to do next working in Burger King, then moving to Western Mass and working at a video store with my brother. And I told him, here's the deal. And so he wasn't a surprise to him in a sense that he had heard rumors as a child. And the rumors often centered around Johanna, you know, that she was the love child, so to speak. Johanna's actually a Higgins. I got sick of it. And so I said, you know what? We need to be honest. You know, you know, daddy can't spend his life thinking something that's not true. It's not my secret to keep. If he didn't want me to tell anybody, he shouldn't have told me. At that point, it had not made my life better. It was just a burden to carry. You know, and then I often felt like I was being overfathered by two people who didn't really have a big stake in my life in terms of what I wanted out of my life. And maybe that sounds harsh, but it was harsh. So before I moved home, I insisted that we have that conversation. And so, of course, my mother made me tell him that was heartbreaking for my dad. He cried. He swore. You know, he, he got upset. He was angry and I don't blame him. And I just said, look, I'm so, you know, and he didn't understand why it had to be told. And I just said, it wasn't my secret to keep daddy. And he he was on my side in this. As hard as it was for him to hear that those words, he understood that if this was something my mother had decided to do, then it was her secret to keep. And and unless there was a reason to share it that would make everyone else's lives better, then it should have stayed secret. This is a much more common story than you would think. As I share my story, more often than not, somebody will say, oh, that's in my family too. Oh, that's in my family too. We like to put, put on this prudish... You know, attitude around sex and sexuality and romance and love and mistakes and, and assault and rape and all of it, and you know, have this black and white idea of what is and isn't. And boy, the world of sex is is gray, 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 way more than Fifty Shades of Gray. So when I was moving home, my parents had now sold the house on Essex Street, and that was where I gave the news. And that was the house that my family bought. That house in 1967, and in 1987, twenty years later, sold it, and my parents bought a home in Webster. And it was late 80s real estate, boom. They paid way too much for this new home. And the, when the market tanked, they ended up being way in over their heads, paying a lot of money for a house that wasn't worth it market-wise. And it was hard on them. So when I finally decided to move home, they no longer lived on Essex Street. So in some ways that was good because I was moving back to a neutral environment. In other ways, it was a pain in the neck because now I was out in the middle of Webster and I had to drive 20 minutes you know, to, to go anywhere. My job, to go to the Y, to work out, to lift, I could just now begin to run. So, you know, I think back to 12 weeks of not running, it wasn't quite that long. It was not quite that long that I couldn't run. And I also, in that summer, went to the physical therapist, Dan Dyrek, who helped me so much with my Achilles issues. And he helped with the stress fracture recovery as well. So David's sister's wedding was right around Labor Day weekend. I remember moving home. It was Richard and Karen in their big truck. And it was like their, the day after their wedding, they hadn't left on their honeymoon yet. And we loaded all my stuff, my furniture, I bet everything into the truck and drove to New Hampshire. And I remember they wanted to go to mass. It was a Saturday afternoon and there was no place to go to mass open. Often a Saturday mass at four o'clock counted at your Sunday mass. I don't quite understand all the Catholicism structure. But at any rate, we called everywhere, the Carmelite Monastery, all the different churches. And that was fine. But they helped me unpack. We were just in the middle of nowhere. And I remember driving back, I had to bring David back. And it was, that was it. That was sort of the goodbye to Boston for me. My last weekend in Boston is this huge family event involving David and his family, Karen and Richard and all of the McIntyres and that whole piece of my life that is still such a huge thread in the fabric of who I am all these years later. That was sort of it. And it was my geographical cure. I was home two weeks when I decided to go to AA and I I started following a really rigid schedule. And I wrote this book on how to accelerate debt relief because I had all this credit card debt and I put myself on a budget. I mean, I really did sort of pull myself up by the bootstraps because I wanted to be back on Nike Boston. I'd I'd also been removed from Nike Boston. So I suppose in in the (laughs) vein of authenticity, I need to be honest about this. So I was at a bar and there was a band called Steve Smith and the Nakeds. And so a lot of my running friends liked that band because they often played at the end of the Falmouth Road Race. And they were playing at a bar in a really crappy neighborhood behind Northeastern. It was in a tough bar, but I remember Franny was there. There were a lot of people there, all walks of life. I think Jane was there, a lot of runners were there. And a lot of David's family, not family, but that part of my life, people connect Aaron and I got hammered. And I was sitting at the bar, smoking a cigarette with someone, I don't know who she was, and she was connected to the band somehow, smoking a cigarette. I wasn't running at the time. I wasn't healthy. And I remember David and all his family, they were leaving. Like, come on, we're leaving. And I'm like, I don't want to leave. You know, I lived in Somerville. I wasn't, there was no way I was going to be able to get home unless somebody in the bar brought me home or I went home with somebody. And so it was one of those nights that I don't remember much. And I remember waking up, the girl that I was sitting at the bar, I must have gone home with her and I'm in an apartment. I have no idea where I am. And so, so, so hungover and feel so crappy. I was still living in Eden Mashi at the time. And I remember gathering my things, and just, just leaving. But I walked up my street and David was sitting on my steps. He just looked at me with utter disgust and, and worry. And he's like, you just never came back. Are you okay? Like, what the hell? He was furious. He's like, I'm out of here. We didn't speak for a couple of weeks. And I, I just really hurt his feelings. And it was just awful. Just that out of control, awful behavior that makes me so sad when I think back. The part of me that loves to hate myself, you know, cringes and disgusts at myself. But the part of me that can look at 22-year-old Barb and look at almost 22-year-old Bracey, just see how young I was and how unready I was for so much of what was happening to me and what had happened to me and all of that. And so those are the kinds of things that happened that summer. And, you know, after Karen's wedding and then going home and just, the geographical cure, that was it. And I cut ties with everybody and I started AA and I just made a new group of friends and I made running friends with the running group in Concord. And, and I remember weeks and weeks going by and David, again, there was no internet. There was no easy way to talk. It was either a handwritten letter or a phone call. We just sort of drifted apart and he said, so are we done? And we've broken up. And I said, I guess so. I just I need to get help. I need to fix myself. And this was the time that I had turned down an offer to run it in Atlanta for Nike South. And I said no, and I'd been offered a teaching job in Atlanta. Like everything was set for me, and I stayed because of David. And then I ended up leaving David anyway. You know that piece of my life and those decisions are are one area that I often look back and think, what "Would my life have been like if I had done that? If I had gone south? Maybe it would have been wonderful. Maybe it would have been nine thousand times worse. I don't know. And you can't look back because you know I created four children now, and I have all these other things that I've, that I've done in my life that that are important and necessary. So. So that's that. I came back to Concord, was injured and then reinvented myself. I do know that that winter, there was a cross country race in San Francisco and there was a huge blizzard in Concord. And I got to go, it was cross country nationals and Nike Boston was running and I was not, I didn't run. Sev had me go and I went with Sev and I didn't participate in any of the social events. I didn't have a drop of alcohol. It was sort of like, I believe in you, welcome back. Sev and I were no longer in any way connected romantically at all, that was over. And it was a good thing. And he was he was on his way to other things. That was that. And I, you know, started getting into my teaching job there just a few months later. Would end up meeting Chaz and starting that relationship, and really just moving my life. So there it is. You know, leaving elementary school and going into middle school, and all that I went through in middle school, dealing with with the abuse, and finally telling somebody what was happening, and all that came from that. Getting into high school and finding running, but falling in love with a teacher and and beginning a relationship with a teacher. That is incredibly illegal and wrong on so many levels and detrimental to me far more than to him, you know, and then just continuing this really scary pattern of relationships and finding somebody that I knew was good and safe, but being put into a state of fear because what you thought was safe wasn't in my life. The person that hurt me was somebody that I should have been able to trust. And obviously I couldn't, that messes with your mind. So I go to college and I just continue. And now I get into living on my own and, you know, and having no way to, to reconcile any of what happened to me. Therapy just doesn't cut it, but running fixes me. And then when I can't run, I'm, you know, I'm all off off kilter and out of control. And then I keep trying to fix myself. And now I'll start teaching and now I'll do this. And now I'll do this. You know, and and I look at my life as just always hoping the next thing will be the thing that fixes me. And really, first of all, I didn't need fixing. You know, I I need I needed help, you know, understanding is what I needed. And as is the case with me, I could get straight A's with minimal amounts of study. And I could, I could do really well at certain things right away. I could always balance the good with the bad. And I think oftentimes children who are abused in the way that I was learn that if you want to keep your family, you have to put up with what happens there. And what you have to learn to do is leave the house and be okay. There was a book called The Prince of Tides, and it was made into a movie. And it was about a family that had been horribly attacked by some criminals, and, you know, beaten and raped, all of them, the kids, the mother. And how what they did was, when their horribly abusive father came back, they acted fine. Their whole life was faking that they were fine. And of course, as adults, they all had a terrible time. There was suicide and drug use and horrible, horrible things. And I remember watching that movie and really, really I should probably rewatch it, but it wrecked me because it just resonated so much with with how I would wake up after a night of abuse and just sit at the kitchen table and be fine. Hi, mommy. You know, and, and just act fine and how, how, how impossible that is. But what that set up for me anyway, you know, I'm lucky. I have a high IQ and I have a body that's suited to athletics and I like athletics. Lots of things worked in my favor so that I could function and find ways to be healthy in my life. I love music and singing and singing is such a soothing thing for the soul. After Molly's death, I refused to let Gracie stop chorus. Gracie, you have to sing have to sing every day. It's just a necessity. And she did. And she danced and just connecting to music. So I moved back to Concord. I've already talked about these years and how those struggles have continued for me. This is just. This was just a crux for me. I came back home, <laughs> returned home. I was a returning citizen to the city of Concord. Ostensibly for a year, that was my plan, to get out of debt and to rejoin my running life away from Concord. And, and that just didn't happen. I really got drawn right into my hometown. So I'll stop here. This would be a logical place to end the season since my seasons are about chunks of my life. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to continue along with season six and I'm going to talk about my early childhood. So as always, do something good for yourself. Before you do something good for someone else, you know, breathe your oxygen, don't forget. And thank you for listening, being a part of my life and my storytelling. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www1000 steps.com.